but Mark's Gospel, if you'll turn there, chapter 2 of Mark's Gospel, again, we'll begin reading at verse 1 of Mark's Gospel account. Now, you recall that as we went through chapter 1, Mark doesn't go over the genealogy of Jesus. He leaves that for Dr. Luke and for Matthew. He doesn't discuss the birth of Jesus. He doesn't give any of the events concerning the childhood of Jesus. He goes right into the ministry of John the Baptist and then into the Galilean ministry of Jesus. And so Mark, as he is, we saw, describing to us, as he's inspired by the Spirit of God to write these things down, we saw that it was Mark telling us how these great multitudes were gathered around Jesus. And as you read the gospel accounts, one of the, the phrases that you read over and over again is Jesus was ministering there in the Galilee region, that northern area of Israel that was a very rural area where a lot of wheat fields and, and orchards, uh, grain fields were at. The Sea of Galilee is located there. And, of course, there are those fishermen that made a living on fishing on the Sea of Galilee. And so Jesus is in that area in great multitudes, that is, huge crowds were coming from all the surrounding area, and they were bringing those who were sick and those who were diseased and the demoniacs for Jesus to touch and to heal. And so big were the crowds, as we saw last week, as we ended chapter 1, that Jesus could no longer enter into those cities, those villages there in Galilee. And so he was out in the deserted places. And as we begin chapter 2, we're going to see some time has passed. And, and Jesus, once again, is going to go into the town of Capernaum. And Capernaum nestled right there on the north shores of the Sea of Galilee. We discussed last week how Capernaum was kind of Jesus' earthly headquarters when he was in the Galilee region. He spent more time in Galilee or in the Galilee region than he did down in, in Jerusalem. He spent more time uh, in Capernaum uh, than any other place in, in the Galilee region. And we see here that he's going to be in a house. And in this house that he is in preaching the word of God, many scholars believe and suggest, we don't know for sure, that perhaps it was Peter's house. And I think that it was Jesus that spent more time in Peter's house than any other place. And so Jesus here, as we read in verse 1 again, he entered Capernaum after some days, and it was heard that he was in the house. And immediately many gathered together so that there was no longer room to receive them, not even near the door, and he preached the word to them. And so the news gets out that Jesus is back in Capernaum, and he's in the house in Capernaum, and it indicates there that this was a house that he regularly visited and that's why there are those that suggest that perhaps it was Peter's house and so the word gets around that Jesus he's here so the crowds begin to grow the people begin to stream back into Capernaum they come to the house they come into the house to where there was absolutely no more room and people began to crowd at the door trying to get a glance glance of Jesus this this one as his fame has now spread all throughout the Galilee region. And the reason that his fame had been spreading, of course, is because he had been doing amazing miracles. Now, I believe that perhaps the people gathered at this particular house because they had heard Jesus was there, he had done miracles, and that's what they wanted to see. They wanted to see Jesus continuing to heal the sick. We saw, as we concluded chapter 1, and we read last week, that he had healed a man with leprosy, and that was un 
unheard of. And so the news went out that he had cleansed that man with leprosy. And so his fame spreading, he was doing uh, miracles and healing those with every kind of sickness. As I mentioned to you, he was casting demons out of people. And we read that the people were amazed. That is, they were absolutely astonished. They had never seen anything like it before. And so no doubt, I think, that they came at this time here as we open up chapter 2 to be touched by Jesus. And we see as we read our text here that Jesus in the house and what is he doing? He's preaching the word to them. And the thing that we need to keep in mind as we read about his ministry and all the miracles that are taking place, that was, of course, a real and very important part of the ministry of Jesus Christ. But we can't forget that the ministry of Jesus centered around the teaching and the preaching of the word. Paul tells us in the book of Romans that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. How does your faith grow? How does my faith grow? It comes by hearing the word of God is what the Bible tells us. And I personally suspect that initially when people were coming to the house and they heard that Jesus was there in the house, that maybe some were disappointed. We didn't come here to hear a Bible study. We've come here to receive a healing. We've come here to see the spectacular. But our Lord prioritized the teaching of the word of God. He has the words of eternal life. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. It is hearing and studying the word, standing fast on the word, having the word of God being tucked into our hearts. He is giving them the good news, how they can come into relationship with God, how it is that they can receive truth because he is truth. And it causes your faith to be solidified as we take in the word of God. So the large crowd had gathered at the house. Jesus began to preach the word to them. We continue reading verse 3. Then they came to him, bringing a paralytic who was carried by four men. And when they could not come near him because of the crowd, they uncovered the roof where he was. So when they had broken through, they let down the bed on which the paralytic was lying. So the house, you can just picture it. And homes in those days weren't very big. They were smaller than the homes that we have in our day that we're used to seeing. And so this house is small. When you go and look at the ruins of Capernaum and they kind of dug up some of the homes, you can see that they were very, very small. The homes were smaller than the sanctuary. And so here is this, this house packed out with people. I imagine there's no room to, to move it all. And the people are at the doorway. I, I imagine that people are out in front and it's crowded. And you couldn't get near to where Jesus was teaching. And people are trying to get a glance of Jesus, trying to hear him, what he's doing, trying to figure out what's going on in that house. And all of a sudden, these four guys come carrying a friend who is sick with palsy. And they're wanting to see Jesus. But they can't get to him. So probably what they did is they went around the back of the house, climbed up on the roof, and hoisted their friend up there, obviously, and they begin to tear off the roof. And, and there is Jesus. You can picture it. He's talking. He's preaching. The house is packed out. And all of a sudden, some debris starts falling from above him. And, and all of a sudden, dirt and other things are falling. I imagine people start looking up, and there's this commotion going on, and the people just kind of move. So they drop this guy that's on this bed, this, this makeshift bed, this paralytic, right in front of Jesus on a pallet. They drop him in front of him. Now, I've been distracted before when I have taught 
but I've never been distracted like this. I mean, I've never talked to anyone, any pastor that has had the roof opened up and all of a sudden somebody is dropped down right in front of them. And so this is what's taken place. These guys are so desperate, they're so eager to have this man be placed right in front of Jesus for Jesus to be able to minister to him. The great lengths that they went to. I consider that this morning, and I hope you do as well. What lengths do we go to to bring people to Jesus? Do we expend the energy? Do we take the time? Do we put in the effort to bring people to Jesus? And that's what these guys did. And so there he is, and all these people are, are looking at it, and Jesus is looking at him. And then verse 5 tells us, when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven you. Now again, at this point, I imagine that these four friends are perhaps maybe initially disappointed. You say, what do you mean disappointed? Because I just wonder if they thought, well, th that's fine. That you said his sins are forgiven, but we really didn't bring him all this way to break and break open the roof and drop him in front of you just to have you say some spiritual statement. And I imagine that those four friends wanted to hear, be healed. That's why they brought this man to Jesus. They wanted healing. They knew that Jesus was doing amazing miracles. We want you to heal him. Instead, your sins are forgiven. But we know that Jesus was taking care of the most important thing first. What really is the most important need that a man, that a woman has? Is it your salvation? Is it coming to Jesus for forgiveness of sin? Or is it a physical healing in your life? And I'm not saying that a physical healing isn't wonderful and, and it's not important to us, but the most important need, the greatest miracle that God can work in any of our lives is that miracle being free from sin, being forgiven of sin, and being transformed into the kingdom of light where we're born again by the Spirit of God, where regeneration takes place and we have a new heart. We're a new creation in Christ. It would be David that wrote, Blessed is the man whose iniquity is forgiven, and happy is the man to whom the Lord does not impute sin. Matthew, in his account of this story, is recorded that Jesus said to this man, Be of good cheer. Your sins are forgiven. And the greatest need that any of us has is the forgiveness of sin. But notice that when Jesus said that statement in verse 5, we read in the following verse, and some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts. Why does this man speak blasphemies like this? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Now the religious leaders caught something here, didn't they? When Jesus said, your sins are forgiven, they said, hey, only God can forgive sin. And they were correct in that statement that they were saying. Only God can forgive sin. But they were wrong in saying that Jesus speaks blasphemies here because, of course, they didn't realize that Jesus, yes, fully man, but he's fully God as well. It wasn't that Jesus, don't think that he was half man and, and half God. He's fully man, fully God. Jesus wasn't speaking blasphemy because Jesus is God. But they were correct in saying that no one can forgive sin but God. Now, you might recall David in Psalm 51 after he had been confronted by Nathan the prophet concerning his sin with Bathsheba. David cried out, Have mercy upon me, O God, according to the multitude of thy tender mercies. Blot out my transgressions, for against you and you only have I sinned and done this great wickedness. Only God can forgive a man's sin. 
So they were incorrect in the, in the first assessment here that he's speaking blasphemies, but in reality, he was showing and claiming that he is God, that he's God in human flesh that came to this world. And he's going to begin after this to speak about that he's going to go to a cross to die for the sins of the world, that our sins would be forgiven, provision of forgiveness, and that he would make atonement for sin. So here he, he's making that claim, that statement, that I am God. I have the ability. I, I as God, am working in where I can forgive sin. It would be then uh, Mark chapter 10, we'll see later on in our study of, of Mark that the rich young ruler who came to Jesus said, Good master, what must I do to have eternal life? It's a good question, isn't it? And it was Jesus that stopped and he said, why do you call me good? There's only one that's good and that is God. And Jesus was not saying I'm not good, I'm not God. He was saying you've recognized the truth to that rich young ruler. He was trying to draw him out in that truth. You've recognized the truth about me that I, that I am good and only God is good. Do you recognize that I am God? And because you recognize that, you can see that I am good. So he was trying to get the rich young ruler to realize what it was that he was saying. So here in Mark chapter 2, Jesus is acting in his divine nature as he said, Sons, your sins are forgiven you. And I just wonder, though, I just wonder that when that paralytic heard those words, that his heart indeed was filled with joy and was warmed. And there was blessing that came to him. Yes, happy is the man whose sin is forgiven. And I know that there are people today, and you know that there are people today, we care about them, we work with them, they're in our families, we go to school with them, and they are paralyzed, they're not walking because of the guilt of sin. And because they haven't come to Jesus Christ and asked for forgiveness. And they've been hit with the sickness of sin in their lives that has affected all of us. But those of us who have come to faith in Jesus Christ and recognize that he is the Savior of the world that has provided forgiveness of sin, it only comes through him. The work of Calvary that, that Jesus accomplished as he hung on that cross and then he would cry out, it is finished, it is completed, the work that I have done. Receive forgiveness of sin. Forgiveness of sin is not found in any other man, in any other religious system. It only comes through the cross of Calvary. And there are people who are still in their sins. There are people who are walking in sin. They have paralysis in their life. Oh, they're walking physically, but they cannot truly walk in good cheer because of sin, because of the guilt and shame of sin, because they've never received forgiveness and been washed by the blood of Jesus Christ. If there's anybody that is here this morning or you that are out there in a coffee shop, I know there's several that are out there, and you've never surrendered your heart to Jesus Christ, you can do so today, and you can be of good cheer as you recognize your need for the Savior, Jesus, and understand that sin came into this world and has affected all of us. But forgiveness comes through Him who's provided forgiveness of sin as he went to Calvary's cross for you because of his love for you. You surrender your heart to him. Recognize that he is truly the Savior of the world, that he is the King of all kings, the Lord of all lords, that died for you because of his love for you. 
And you too can be of good cheer as you surrender your heart to Jesus Christ. In verse 8, but immediately when Jesus perceived in his spirit that they reasoned thus within themselves, he said to them, why do you reason about the things in, these things in your heart? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, arise, take up your bed and walk? but that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, arise, take up your bed, and go to your house. And immediately he arose, took up the bed, and went out of, in the presence of them all, so that all were amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. Jesus saying that you may know, that you may know that the Son of Man has power to forgive sin. Jesus knew what was in the hearts of those scribes. He, they didn't say it verbally, but he perceived in their hearts. And you see, God is the only one that truly knows the hearts of man. He knows your heart as well. And here he knows what these religious leaders are thinking. He knows what they're perceiving in their hearts. And so he proposed a test, which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven or take up your bed and walk. Jesus was saying to those religious leaders, you question my ability to forgive sins. I'm going to demonstrate to you that I not only have the power to forgive sins, but the power to heal as well, proving that Jesus had power in the words that he spoke. And he would say, rise, take up your bed and walk. And this man got up forgiven of sin and healed of his disease, walked out of that house, and all were amazed, again, astonished. And they glorified God. And it's important for us to note that. As they had never seen anything like this before, this man completely healed. But here's the thing. When he left that house, they glorified God. And one of the things that you will see consistently as you go through all four gospel narratives is that when Jesus did a miracle, he did it in such a way to where it says that they glorified God. When they saw the miracles, when they saw him working, that they began to glorify God. Jesus would say on that Sermon on the Mount, let your light so shine before men that when they see your good works, that they may glorify your Father which is in heaven. Now there are two ways to let your light shine. There are two ways by which you can do your works. You can let your light shine in such a way that when men see your good works, that they say, oh, what a glorious person you are. Look how wonderful you are. You sure are marvelous and holy and special and spiritual and so great. And drawing attention to praise to yourself. And there can be that tendency. We want people to see God working through us. And we like the attention. We like to, to have people notice us. But it's a very dangerous place to be. Because the Bible says that God will not share his glory with any man or any woman. And we know that pride is a very dangerous thing. It's what made Lucifer fall and become Satan. And so we don't want to draw attention and praise to ourselves. What we are to do is let our light so shine that when men see the good works, they say, isn't God great? God, you are good. And you see, we need to understand something, that we have nothing to boast in and of ourselves. It would be Paul the Apostle that he wrote at the end of the book of Galatians. He said, I boast in nothing but in the cross of Christ. And Jesus Christ and him crucified is what he said to the Corinthian churches, is what I preach. And you see, we can do nothing apart from Jesus Christ. We can't be forgiven. We can't come into salvation. We can't come into right relationship with the Father. He's the one that gives us a new heart. He's the one that does that work in us and through us. 
So how can we sit there and boast about ourselves? And how can we try to take the glory away from God? He's doing that work. God is the one that's good. So Jesus was working in such a way that people were glorifying God. And it was Jesus that desired to glorify the Father. And so that's what we should do in our works in such a way that we don't draw attention to ourselves, try to exalt ourselves. When we serve Jesus Christ, we must do it in humility and out of love for him and the desire to exalt the Lord. He's the one that forgives. He's the one that died for people's sins. He's the one that gives us salvation. I can't save anybody. I can't take anyone's sin away. I can't bring people into the right relationship with the Father. It comes through Jesus Christ, but I point people to Jesus, and we glorify him. And we must reckon the old man to be dead with Christ in order that we might be alive unto God and live not for our own glory, not for our own recognition, not to receive praise for ourselves, but to do our works in such a way that when men see the good works, they glorify not me, not you, but our Father which is in heaven. And Jesus set the classic example for us as we see all throughout the gospel accounts. And so verse 13, then he went out again by the sea, that is the Sea of Galilee, and all the multitude came to him and he taught them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax office, and he said to him, follow me. So he rose and followed him. Levi, we know him as Matthew. It's likely that Jesus probably changed his name to Matthew. We know that Jesus would change the name of Simon. We've read about Simon. He is that fisherman that we know as Peter. And Peter up there at Caesarea Philippi, when he gave that confession, that it was Jesus that said, now your name is going to be Peter, which means rock, little rock, little stone, rocky. That's your name. It's going to be Peter. Simon means shifting sand. But now, because of the confession, you're more solid. You're going to be rock because you've put your faith and trust on the rock Jesus Christ. We know that it was interesting, James and John, there's a nickname that was given to them. We don't know who gave them that nickname, if it was Jesus, but they were called the Sons of Thunder. The reason they were called that is because they wanted to call down fire on a village that didn't accept Jesus' ministry. And so it's likely that Jesus changed Levi's name to Matthew, which means gift of God. Isn't that wonderful? And I think that's the way the Lord sees you. That he sees you as a gift, as very precious, very important to him. Never forget that. And Levi Matthew lived and worked in Capernaum. He's a tax collector. Now what would that mean? Matthew, being a tax collector and being a fellow Jew, would be hated by the people. He would be hated by the Jewish people there in Israel for a couple reasons. Number one, that Matthew was seen as a traitor. He was working for the despised Roman Empire who was oppressing the empire was of all of the known world at that time. And it was very difficult for the people. And secondly, tax collectors were very dishonest for the most part. They were kind of trained extortioners. That is, they were not given a set salary by Rome, but they made their living by taxing the people beyond what the law demanded. And you see, every tax collector was given a quota that he had to raise in his area, and anything that he raised above that amount, the tax collector kept for himself. And so they would fleece everybody that they could. And they would collect 
way above or try to above the quota that they were given. In Luke's gospel, it says that when the tax collectors went to be baptized by John the Baptist, they said, Teacher, what must we do? And John answered them and said, that Collect no more than what is appointed to you. If necessary, the tax collector could call on the Roman soldiers to enforce an individual to pay up. So the tax collectors, they were ones that were extremely wealthy, a lot of them. They lived lives of luxury, causing an even greater resentment among the people of Israel. So here is Levi, here is Matthew, looked down upon by most. He's hated by many, and then there comes Jesus. And Jesus looks them right in the eyes and says, follow me. And Matthew got up from his tax table, and instead of working for the king of Rome, he went to work for the king of kings. It's interesting, in Luke's account of this, Luke tells us that he left all, rose up, and followed him. He left all, rose up, and followed him. And I think it's important for us to note that order this morning. He would leave all, and then he rose up, and he followed after Jesus. And you see, there needs to be a leaving before there can really be a rising up. And as you read the gospel accounts, it's interesting to note the things that people left behind, and then they rose up and followed after him. Didn't we see in chapter 1 that when Jesus called Peter and his brother Andrew and James and John, that he called them to follow after him, but what did they do? They left their nets and their boats, and they followed after Jesus. I can't help but think about when you read John chapter 4, that familiar story of the Samaritan woman there at the well. And she came specifically with her water pot to fill that water pot with water. But after she talked with Jesus about living water, what happened? It says that she left her water pot there and ran back into town to tell the men of the city, come and see a man who has told me everything that I have done. So they all went out to hear him. But she left that water pot behind. I think about the widow at name who was leading the processional, the funeral, where her only son was in the casket. And guess what happened? Jesus touched him and he rose up and he left that casket behind. I think of the beggar Bartimaeus who would use his garment to hold the money that people would toss in his direction. And when Jesus said to Bartimaeus, come forth, it says that he left that garment behind and he rose up. He just left it there, no need of it any longer. So I wonder, perhaps, what the Lord might be speaking to you, to me, about this morning. About something that is holding us back. That's weighing us down. Maybe something in this world that we're just hanging on to so tightly. And you see, the people that are freest in the Lord are those who have learned to just leave things behind. Those things that will weigh us down in the Lord. Those things that will keep us from fully experiencing just that closeness and being used of the Lord and walking with the Lord in the way that we can and the way that we should. Because we can't leave it behind. The fishing boats, the money, the garments, the water pots. I pray in our own lives, whatever it might be, that none of those things would never have a priority in our life over the Lord. And yet I see people, and I've watched even in my own life at times, be limited, weighed down in life, 
perhaps not used in a way that it could have held down because unlike Matthew, I, I was not. And I've seen people, and you have too, they have not been willing to just leave it behind. Whatever it might mean for you, whatever it might mean for me, the old stuff, but hanging on to it. And you see, Jesus wants to set us free. And what the world wants to do is to weigh us down. And if the Lord is speaking to you this morning to just leave it behind, then leave it behind and rise up and follow after him. And that's what Matthew did. And so we read in verse 15, Now it happened as he was dining in Levi's house that many tax collectors and sinners also sat together with Jesus and his disciples. For there were many, and they followed him. And when the scribes and Pharisees saw him eating with tax collectors and sinners, they said to his disciples, How is it that he eats and drinks with tax collectors and sinners? Verse 17 tells us, When Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. And I did not come to call the righteous but sinners into repentance. So Matthew had all of his tax-collecting buddies, no other, you know, and his other sinners that were there, the only ones that would hang out with the tax collectors, over to his house to have a farewell dinner. Matthew would say farewell to his work, I believe. I think he's saying farewell to his friends. I'm going to follow the one who's going to travel from place to place. It was an opportunity as well for them to be introduced to his newfound Lord. And so Jesus has dinner with all of these people. He's in the midst of them. He's eating with them. All of the tax collectors and all of the sinners, all of the despised social outcasts, and all of a sudden, guess who comes by? Of course, it's the religious leaders, the scribes and the Pharisees. They passed by and they saw this, and, and they said to his disciples, how can he do this? How can he be eating with these sinners and tax collectors? They saw that in that culture at that time as, as intimate fellowship when you ate with somebody, a closeness. They were appalled by that. They were scandalized. It's obvious that he's a friend of these people. Why does he do this? Doesn't he know who these people are? And why does he allow himself to be seen in the company of such men? And this is what interests me. As we go through the Gospels, it was the sinners who were responding to Jesus. They ate with him. They enjoyed talking with him. Mark declares that the common people heard him gladly because he wasn't screaming at them. He wasn't condemning them, coming down on them. He gave truth to them. But he was the perfect balance of truth and grace. And he taught them about the kingdom, about the love of the Father. And sinners responded to Jesus It was those religious leaders, the Pharisees and scribes, that had a real hard time with Jesus to where eventually we're going to read in the next chapter that they're going to determine to put him to death. You see, when Jesus saw the loss, he showed compassion to them. He had a love for them. And I mention that because I pray that Calvary Chapel, that we would be a place that the lost can come that they must hear the truth, that we must have a heart for the lost. And we need to ask ourselves, Lord, what is my attitude? What is our attitudes to the lost? Is it pharisaical or do I have a concern? Do I have compassion? Do I have a love for those who are, are lost? And I would pray 
all of us need to pray about spending a little time with people who don't know the Lord. I'm not saying be involved in their sin or their activities or any of that, but to share with those at the right time, in the right setting, about the truth of the Lord and how the Lord has changed you and the good news of the gospel and what the Lord is teaching you, what he means to you, what he's done in your life. Introduce them to Jesus like Matthew has done here. And you know what you'll discover? That some of them are going to be touched and some of them are going to be amazed and some of them are going to be attracted to Jesus just like they were in the days of Matthew. And there will be those with a pharisaical mind and heart. They'll scoff and they'll grumble. But may we be like this man who opened up his heart in his home so that people can meet Jesus. Now, I want to answer this because I know that sometimes there are people that will ask this. Well, you know, is it okay for me to go to parties, go to bars, go to taverns, and we're full of unbelievers? People ask me all the time. I just want to say, you be wise. You be wise and discerning, and you be careful. Because I've talked to some who have gone in my office, and they said, I had the best intentions, and I wanted to go into this place, I wanted to go to this party, I wanted to go where this activity is going on, and what ended up happening is they're brokenhearted as I came out smelling like booze, and my mind was polluted by the songs and the conversations that were going on, and I came out looking more like the world, even though I shared a verse or two. And we need to be careful. And we need to have the model that is placed before us. And that was Matthew invited them over to his house of meeting Jesus. And I think that's a good model. That sometimes we can think that we're more stronger spiritually than we really are. And the Old Testament can make you know, reference to meddling to your own hurt. And I think that we need to be careful because oftentimes we can think we're much stronger than we really are. Oh, I'm going to witness at that party. And we need to be careful we don't have an elevated opinion of our spiritual strength or stigma and there is temptations that are there. And we need to just be in prayer and you need to be careful. Stay away from situations that are going to bring you down. And you pray, Lord, Open the door for me to share with the lost at the proper time in the proper setting, Lord, so I can introduce them to Jesus. Remember again, it was Matthew that invited them over to his house for the purpose of them meeting Jesus, to be exposed to the one who has changed my life, and now I'm going to follow him. And Jesus came and he said, I didn't come to call the righteous but sinners into repentance. He came to give care to and help to the sick, those who were stricken by the sickness of sin. Those who are spiritually sick. And anyone here that you might feel spiritually sick this morning, weak, hurting, guess what? You are the person that Jesus comes to especially and how we need to remember this. That Jesus says, I come to work with and help out sinners, tax collectors, others who are rejected, who are outcasts. I need to be with them. The physician who came not only to heal the sick, but you know what? He pays the bill with his own blood. He paid the price for our sickness and not only heals, but he paid the price, the bill for you and for me. And isn't that why we worship this morning? Isn't that why we rejoice? Isn't that why we come in with gladness? 
And I hope and pray that Calvary Chapel continues to and even increasingly continues to be a place where sinners come. I hope that we become more like Jesus, where sinners feel like they can come and they can hear truth and they can see that we have a real concern and compassion for them, that they will see the love of Jesus Christ coming from us and that we would pray that their hearts would be opened up to the things of God. Aren't you so thankful that somebody took the time to share Christ with you and how we need to share it with others? I think it's sad when I hear somebody who is really hurting and seeking and and questioning, well, in the world I'm accepted, but the church I'm rejected. So may we be ones that share with those about Jesus. That is what Matthew Levi did. He brought all the tax collectors and sinners to his house. The scribes and the Pharisees were upset, but nonetheless, Jesus clarifies his mission once again very clearly. In verse 18, the disciples of John and the Pharisees were fasting, And then they came and they said to him, Why do the disciples of John and of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the friends of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. So once again, we have a group of offended religious leaders. And evidently, when this has taken place, it must have been a fast day when this incident is occurring. We know that the law of Moses required only one day of the year to be a fast day. We read about it there in Leviticus chapter 16. It's the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. It's the only day that the law required for there to be a fast. But the Pharisees, in order to show how zealous they were for God, over the years they designated certain days as fast days. And so they did it to try to bring attention uh, you know, to, to themselves. And Jesus, of course, rebuked them for that. He says, when you fast, don't be like the Pharisees who go to the marketplace and they go there with their sackcloth on and rub ashes all over their faces and they you know, suck in their cheeks so they look all gaunt and the people look at them there in the marketplace as they're putting food in their you know, baskets and saying, oh, that poor Pharisee, look at them. They're so spiritual, they're so special. Jesus rebuked them and said, don't do that. You don't call people's attention to your piety, trying to be all religious. They hoped that God would take notice too. And God did take notice, but he was grieved by what they were doing. So many days of the year had become a fast day, long established in custom, so it was taken for granted that everybody was going to fast on those days. And evidently, this is one of those fast days. And so some people come to Jesus and they said, everybody else is fasting, why aren't your disciples fasting? Why don't you keep our rules, our regulations? Why does your group feel like they don't have to adhere to the same standards as everybody else? And Jesus gave an interesting answer to them. He said, as long as the bridegroom is with them, they cannot fast. Now, as you read the Jewish Talmud, there was one time that it tells us that a man was absolved from all duty, even prayer. And that was at the wedding ceremony. The only duty at a wedding ceremony that a man had was one, and that was to rejoice. A man was absolved from all duty of a wedding ceremony, even prayer is what the Talmud said, except for his single responsibility, and that was he was to rejoice. And here Jesus is saying, hey, you religious leaders, something new is happening. The Lord is putting his finger upon the nature of the new relationship that had come to demonstrate and to bring to men. You see, 
they were so used to all the rituals and customs and temple worship and ceremonies and all this centering around the sacrifice and silence before the greatness of God. And now the Lord is teaching them, I'm amongst you. And a new relationship has come in which there is vitality and worth of intimacy with the bridegroom himself that can only be expressed in terms of joy and gladness and celebration. You see, we cannot change a bitter world with a sour religion. And religion is not truly going to change a bitter and dark world. It's relationship with Jesus Christ. And Jesus was saying, hey, this is rejoicing time. The disciples are with me. It's not a time to be fasting. It's a time to celebrate. It's a time for rejoicing. You know what my prayer is? My prayer is that we wouldn't just be sour and dour and grumpy Christians. Jesus said the friends of the bridegroom are rejoicing. We are likened to the bride of Christ. And because we are friends of the bridegroom, we are to have a heart of rejoicing and celebration. I know we go through difficulties. And I know very well we can experience sadness. We have difficult times and we can be down. But I pray that people deep down inside of that would see joy, an inner joy in our hearts. They would see that our countenance is different. That we have a heart of thankfulness. And that we have rejoicing that takes place in our hearts every day because we are saved and forgiven. It's not religion and sadness. It's not a funeral. It's relationship and gladness. It's a wedding. And Jesus says, I'm with you. In verse 20, but the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them and then they will fast in those days. And I will say this, that if a church does not have the presence of Jesus, then it will be dull, it will be heavy, and it will be a sour kind of thing. If Jesus is not there, if the joy of the Lord is not expressed, if the Spirit is not moving, we will be more like a funeral, not like a wedding. And if the Lord is here, which He is, isn't He? He is, isn't He? Then this is a time for us to have joy and celebration for so good a salvation. We are forgiven and the Lord is risen and we're going to have heaven and happy is, is the people whose God is the Lord. And so Jesus goes on to say in verse 21, no one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment or else a new piece pulls away from the old and the tear is made worse and no one puts new wine into old wineskins or else the new wine bursts the wineskins and the wine is spilled and the wineskins are ruined. But new wine must be put into new wineskins. In answering their question about fasting and religiosity, Jesus is saying, I'm not talking about patching up the old system, the system that the Pharisees, the religious leaders have put in place, traditions have established, I'm not doing that. I'm not trying to patch up the old. It won't work. If you put a, a piece of cloth, a new cloth, on an old garment, when it goes into the wash, the new piece will shrink away. You can't patch up the old systems. I'm doing a new work. Not according to the old religious system, the Pharisaical system. He says you can't put new wine in hardened old wineskins because that new wine, when it begins to ferment, it begins to push against the old rigid hard wineskin and it will burst the wineskin. It will break and the wine will be lost and the wineskin ruined. 
but you put new wine in new wineskins, and both are preserved. Now for you note-takers, a couple interesting words here in the Greek in this passage. The word for new, neos, new wine. But when he talks about new wineskins, he uses a different Greek word. He uses the word kainos. So verse 22, draw attention to that verse again. He says new wine, neos wine, must be put into kainos wineskins. And kainos, that word in the Greek literally means refresh. It means renewed wineskins. So in Jesus' day, what would happen is wineskins were valuable and they were relatively expensive. So the people in that day, when they had wineskins that would get hard, what they would do is if they didn't have money to go and buy a new one, which many of them didn't, they would renew it. They would refresh it. They would kinos it, if you would. And you would take that old wineskin, you would soak it for days in water. And as you did that, the elasticity and the flexibility would return if you took the old hardened wineskin and put it in water. The scripture says that the word is like likened unto water. Jesus said, you're clean by the word which I have spoken to you. Paul talks about being washed by the water of the word. So how do we stay flexible? How are we refreshed? How are we renewed? How do we stay refreshed? And whatever the Lord is doing to us in our lives individually, as a congregation, what do we do? We soak in the scriptures. We don't soak in traditions and programs and entertainment, but we soak in the scriptures and we make that the priority of our lives. We make that the emphasis of this ministry. And we say, I'm going to soak in the scriptures and the scriptures will have a softening, renewing, refreshing effect on our lives. But when the Bible no longer has priority in the life of an individual, in the life of a church, when programs and traditions and regulations and religiousness and entertainment, whatever it might be, has priority. Then you start to get hard. You start to get rigid. But we as a church, if we're determined to say together, Lord, it is a priority to study your word. Corporately, smaller groups, as families, as we gather as families, having devotions, individually, we're going to soak in the word. You will see that there will be a continual renewing and refreshment that will come to you and discoveries and new understandings and new softenings. But you will get hard and I will get hard if we neglect the soaking of the water of the word upon these wineskins. Jesus is bringing a breath of fresh air to the religious scene that had become so burdensome and hard for the people. And he begins to say, I'm doing something new. It's relationship. I'm bringing the truth to you, the word of God. It's a time for rejoicing because I'm amongst you, because you have real hope. And so, Father, we thank you. We thank you for this time in your word once again. Oh, the words of Jesus are the words of eternal life. And, Father, this morning as we come and as we just pray this morning, I ask if there's anyone here in this sanctuary, anybody that's perhaps watching the service out in a coffee shop, that, Lord, if there's anyone here that has never surrendered their heart to Jesus Christ, we want to give you opportunity to do that this morning, that you understand the good news. And the good news is simply this, that we have all sinned. 
And Jesus, the great physician, came to heal us of our sins. And the way that he did that is he went to the cross of Calvary and died for you. He died for your sins because he loves you. And Jesus, the one who fulfilled the law, the one who lived a perfect life, the Son of God who came to this world went to the cross for you because of his love for you. And he hung on that cross and shed his blood as all of your sins were placed upon him so that you can have forgiveness of sin. And not only forgiveness of sin, but as you surrender to him, as you turn to him, then he comes into your heart and he gives you the power to, to be free from that sin. The power of the Holy Spirit as you're born again, a new creation in Christ. That's the good news. It's not found in any other religious system. It's not found in any other person. It's only found in Jesus Christ. He is your Savior. And he's knocking on the door of your heart this morning. And he's saying, let me in. And what you're to do is to recognize that you're a sinner and the Bible says repent. That is, turn to him and surrender your heart to him. And you pray in your heart, Jesus, come into my heart. Be my Lord and Savior. I confess that I am a sinner. And I believe that you're the Son of God who died on Calvary's cross for me. Forgive me of my sins. Be my Lord and Savior. I believe that you were put into a grave. You rose again. You're alive. And I know that you're knocking on the door of my heart right now. And I open it up to you. Thank you for forgiving me and for saving me. And the hope that I now have and freeing me. Forgiven me of sins. Now I can walk and not be paralyzed any longer. Thank you, Lord, for your love for me. And I just pray, if there's anybody by chance that you prayed that for the very first time in your life, and even if you're out in a coffee shop, I want you to raise your hand. Anybody at all in this sanctuary, that we can just bless you and have you come up for prayer. Anybody at all, we're not going to extend this. 